0: Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary Media with Russell Brand. I'm Russell Brand. I spoke with journalist and author Malcolm Gladwell this week in his new book, Talking to Strangers, What We Should Know About the People We Don't Know, which is out this week, 10th of September. Uh, We get to see a powerful examination of our interactions with strangers and why they often go wrong. I've read some of it. It's bloody good. And you know Malcolm Gladwell, of course you do, and you're interested in Malcolm Gladwell because he gives you... uh, bits of conversation and uh, academic insight in a way that you can appreciate and understand. At least that's my relationship with his previous work, books like Outliers and Blink and all that kind of stuff. He's also the host of the Revisionist History podcast and author of the number one New York Times bestseller book, Outliers. I told you about that already. Thanks for all your comments on last week's podcast with Anna Whitelock. I'm going to do those in a moment. But first, I'm going to exhort you to look at my YouTube channel, subscribe to it. Click on the thing that makes a little bell ring on your phone and also to subscribe to my mailing list. I'm going to send you such intimate videos on there. I mean, they're you know, professional, <laughs> not across any boundaries of taste, but you'll get stuff that I really think is going to shake you up. Uh, so let's have a look at these Anna Whitelock comments. ghoster said, I'd love to see the back of the lot of them. He's referring to the royal family who Anna and I were discussing. Bowing and scraping to someone is just beyond me in the 21st century, just because they're born into a particular class. Britain is still class-ridden because of this archaic, outdated institution. It's an interesting opinion roller coaster, and I'm inclined to agree to a point, although, you know, Jordan Peterson might say that bowing and scraping and hierarchies is inherent within not just human cultures, but all animal cultures, famously right down to the lowly crustaceans. And I would say that even in republic societies, there's still elitism, there's still hierarchy. And, you know, so whilst I'm inclined to agree that the abolition of hierarchical, uh, the institutionalized hierarchy is a beneficial thing, we would have to be very thorough roller Ghoster, if we were to make a meaningful social difference david williams the greatest monarch we've ever had the queen has done a wonderful job the queen is much loved by ordinary people not of course by these middle class socialists but hey they hate ordinary people so that just shows you some of the diversity of views that we get from our listeners and what a good job jenny has done Fidgeting about forensically through my numerous platforms like Twitter, follow me at Rusty Rockets or Instagram, I'm Russell Brand on there. Hey, let's get on TikTok, baby. Yeah, don't shake your head at TikTok. Yeah, new thing TikTok and LinkedIn. We've got a. I've. <laughs> Gary, I watched the video. <laughs> LinkedIn, you don't need a job Yeah, we want to be on TikTok and LinkedIn. You can find me. Uh, Buster Bad Boy Russ on TikTok and uh, Russ Straight to the Top on LinkedIn. These platforms are blowing up, baby, blowing up. Don't cover your face because you're in your 20s and you think of me as an old granddad in a cardigan. I have been watching YouTube videos and I know what's going on. Here's another uh, comment about Anna Whitelock. I love the way Anna talks. She's so relaxed and eloquent. Well, wait till you see the YouTube clips. Relaxed ain't the word. The the woman looked like Jacob Rees-Mogg. She was supine almost in the studio, laying back to to a ridiculous degree. But what a wonderful contribution she gave and I loved learning from her. Paul Holmes goes, the Queen is lovely and has done what she set out to do. Difficult to keep that level of commitment for any person. I really admire her and will miss her. Well done, Paul Holmes. I appreciate your input, mate. If you want to tweet us or hit us up on TikTok or LinkedIn or or Insta, or any of those platforms, we are on them all, because that's what we've got to be, baby, as we boost ourselves into an unknowable future of commerce and triumph. But let's get now to the point of all this, a conversation between me and Malcolm Gladwell, who came here, very, very slim, barely any body fat on him, very intense person, very I'd say a man with great poise and intelligence and uh, dignity. Let's now enjoy that dignity down our ear rolls in the form of this podcast with the wonderful, illuminating, edifying and delightful Malcolm Gladwell. (laughs) Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful yes, route. Yes, that's,
1: that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology.
0: What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told. And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the skin. Malcolm Gladwell, I'm so happy to have you on this podcast because, well, you know, I'm sure you must be aware that... There's so many conversations that uh, I, but I'm sure many, many other people have, that are infused with so often uncredited references to, yeah, what about that thing where you can just blink and like you can tell if someone's going to be a good teacher? I remember that from when I first read Blink and yeah. reading that you would even use that method in the in constructing the cover for that book. Also, outliers. Oh, my God. If another person tells me I have to do 10,000 hours exactly. or something, I
1: can't take any more you of it. You have my apologies for You're how th- your life has been. Um, You're, take- arming <laughs> yes. You're
0: arming the terrorists. You're arming the soods But I've been—I've taken full advantage of that artillery. What, uh, what do you think it is about your work that has granted this
1: populist
0: success?
1: I don't know what is that. I mean, I'm—I—I um, I try and maybe I, I try and to write as simply and engagingly as I can. Um, uh, I've, you know, been lucky that I'm. You know, actually, let me backtrack and say that a friend of mine who was um, a screenwriter in Hollywood, actually, who wrote for The Simpsons, once said, he said to me, you know what the secret of your success is? He said, you're recognizable in profile, because I have a big head of fuzzy hair. And he said, the number of writers in the world who are recognizable in profile is very small. So, And then he said, in fact, the number of people who are recognizable in profile is very small. Homer Simpson is obviously recognizable in profile. Elvis, you know, I don't mean to put myself in the same category as Homer Simpson and Elvis, but it does help to be recognizable in profile, right?
0: <laughs> you could have done a lot less research and a lot more focus on your sort of the kind of topiary yes. of your yeah, hair. Yeah. And then yeah. had a great deal more success for a lot less labor.
1: Yes, that's right. Actually, it's recognizable in silhouette. Silhouette, Silhouette. that's right. Who yes. was the writer? eye. Uh, it was a, uh, a Canadian friend of mine named um, uh, Tim, God, what's his last name? Don't worry. Tim, Tim Long. Tim Long. He's, uh, he was head writer of The Simpsons for, um, for a while. He was a very uh, funny person. You've been in The Simpsons, haven't you? I may have been referenced. I feel like
0: I can remember Lisa Simpson mentioning Malcolm Gladwell. I think Tim probably stuck me in at one point. God That's, love him. That is
1: a kind of, you know, you only get in The Simpsons if you know someone and they're, and they're making an inside joke.
0: Right, I see.
1: Yeah,
0: that's really undermined my, my own inclusion, but I think you're probably <laughs> right. Um, hey, well, hmm. okay then. Now, here's a person that you remind me of. I don't know if you know yeah. him. The uh, English filmmaker Adam Curtis, who's a sort of,
1: oh. do you know that dude? Well, you know, that is very, very high praise on your part. I'm not sure I'm worthy of that, of that um, comparison, but I am aware of him. He, he's a genius
0: wicked and wow he, this that might finally encourage him to listen to the podcast <laughs> <laughs> he's certainly been he's been on it once he was on the first one actually adam yeah um but like uh i think that one of adam's many abilities is uh he the way that he can construct narratives that's uh that have great potency and momentum behind them and in certainly in adam's case he covers like good quite large time periods and you feel like well this is the only way that Mm -hmm. that 30 year period of time can ever be understood it's a great achievement i.e he sort of creates you know and this is somewhat comparable to what you've said about being recognizable in silhouette It's almost he can construct icons he can construct idols he can construct an object so now the object of 10,000 hours or the object of you know we can blink and tell if someone's a good language teacher or whatever that was one of the ones that particularly resonated with me because I was a language teacher at the time and a bad one if they blinked at me well it would probably have improved their experience um so like uh, it's uh, that's it seems to me that you can create objects of veracity you know I'm not I'm sure it's not easy I'm sure it takes a great deal of work but that's one of the comparisons yeah, I'd like yeah. to uh, offer you
1: Yeah he 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 can he constructs these kind of alternate narratives um where the where he takes he 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 takes non-obvious connections and makes them seem obvious it's a which is it's the the, the it's, he does. He's one of those people who the end result looks a lot easier than it is because he does it so well. You know, you think, "Oh, that makes perfect sense," and I'm, I'm, I'm surprised I didn't think that way all all the time. But of course, you you can't unless you're no,
0: him. No, it's for. Like, there's many of Adam Curtis's uh, narratives now, like, "Oh, that's now my opinion on that forever." I'll just that's what I'll go around saying at dinner parties from now on. Although the English uh, TV critic, God rest his soul, A.A. Gill, said um, like uh, that he likened Adam Curtis to a tramp at the side of a motorway with a shopping trolley full of archive footage, just splicing it arbitrarily and shouting things at passing vehicles. Certainly a post-structuralist approach uh, in, in Gill's d- deduction there. So um, to, like, just to give people an overview, we. we like because maybe some people won't have heard of you Not that, uh, I can particularly imagine that but like so Blink was based uh, was that sort of saying that our intuitive powers c- c- are comparable to
1: our rational powers well it was about the it was about the primacy of our intuitive powers I wasn't convinced they were necessarily good I was convinced that they were powerful and influential so I was as they could be uh, you know, if you someone, so this is from your world, uh, a, a comic who has been doing stand-up for years and years and years and years can have an in- intuition about an audience very, very early on in the performance, which is invariably correct. Same thing, I remember having a conversation, I forgot who it was, with a talk show host on this. And I said, when when a guest sits down next to you, how long does it take you to know whether the interview will be a disaster or um, a triumph? And he says, oh, three seconds, four seconds. And that was, if you spend a lifetime doing a particular thing, your intuition becomes very, very powerful. But outside of those areas where we are expert, our intuition can be more than dangerous. It can be, it can lead us badly astray. And that, Blink was a was a kind of, it was a balance. I wanted to celebrate those instances where it was where intuition was good, but also the second half of the book was all about cases where, um, where 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 intuition went wildly astray. This book, talking to strangers, zeroes in on a particular category of impression, and that is the way in which we size up a stranger, um, and attempts to kind of talk about. I'm this time I'm really squarely concerned with how can it go wrong and why does it go wrong so often? Because I'm more impressed by what goes wrong with our interactions with strangers than what can occasionally go right.
0: This is really interesting stuff. Like, is it, you know, I was thinking while you're saying that, like, oh, like, this might be the era of the blink politics, you know, like that, where we sort of think this guy looks like they should be the leader of the United States of America. Go do it. You know, like sort of a nation operating on hunches, a globe operating on hunches. When you're talking about your... um, uh, The... Bigotry, well, not necessarily bigotry. The prejudice that we bring to our interaction with mm. strangers. What uh, does that tell us about uh, social indoctrination? What does it? What does it tell? And how and how much? How much of it do you believe to be cultural, and do you think that there are other influences aside from cultural?
1: Well, there's. It's a mix. So I'll give you an example of something. I spend a big chunk of the book talking about what I call transparency, and transparency is the idea that. The feelings you have on your on the inside are reliably and accurately expressed in your demeanor and facial expression and body language. This, if you study this carefully as psychologists have done, you realize it's not true. So actors do this, and in fact I did this really fun thing where I took a I took a, a clip from a episode of the sitcom Friends. I gave it to a psychologist who was an expert in analyzing human expression and i said um how often when someone on friends feels surprised is that surprise registered on their face when they're angry do they look angry when they are um you know in shock do they look shocked and what you discover when you do that is that is you know when joey is surprised on friends joey's jaw drops his eyes grow wide. His eyebrows shoot up. He looks exactly like a surprised person is supposed to look. And when Ross is angry, Ross's voice goes down, and his eyebrows, you know, come together, and his and his, you know, his 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 lips, um, settle into a, a kind of angry slit. They all, because they're actors, they all beautifully represent their internal states, um, with their expression. In fact, if you so, I tried this and I, I encourage everyone to do this with any sitcom, but do it with friends, for example. Turn the volume off, watch an episode that you haven't seen before, and then see if you can make sense of the episode without any sound. And the answer is, yes, you can. You miss nuances of plot, but can you track the emotional arc of that episode with the sound off? Completely, 100%. That's how actors act. Now, the real that's transparency, right? The question is, do we do that in the real world? And the answer is, we do not. We think we do. We, we import this idea from watching television, but in fact, people who are you know guilty don't act guilty. People who are deceiving you don't avert their eyes and get nervous and get all shifty. Sometimes they do, a lot of times they don't. If I were to reach up right now and punch you, you I'm sure you would be shocked by that action. Your face wouldn't... No, you wouldn't do that. You're making, a, you're making the shock face right now. You would not make the shock face if I, if I punched you right now. I'd oh, do the angry Ross.
0: I, my lips would settle <laughs> into a slit of discontent. Oh, that shouldn't have
1: happened. This is on my territory. That's you would, interesting. You but... would feel it. But whether or not you, it was represented on your face would be, I mean, reaction. There was actually data on this, but highly unlikely that you would make the classic shock face. Where do these archetypes of, of visage
0: come from then? Because the one thing I've noticed as a father of young children mm-hmm. is that you know when she's tired, she rubs her eyes. She, you know, They do seem to have some yeah. v- syntax of facial yeah. grammar yes. and expression that seems to be somehow universal or recognizably In indigenous. In the very
1: beginning, I think that's probably true. But as adults, what happens is we quickly, those kinds of instinctive reactions... Um start to kind of um uh, uh, uh become more complicated and diverge from expectation um we i think we've i actually think we've gotten it from the movies and from novels you know her face fell with disappointment when she heard you know that she hadn't gotten the job or uh, um you know his all of that kind of language from from novels about that tries to kind of um help us understand uh uh, character's emotional trajectory is all is essentially made up um it's a culturally constructed thing and what that does is it you know and by the way when we're dealing with a friend if, you, if you're talking to your best friend you know that your best friend is someone who when she's angry she doesn't show it she holds it in when She's happy, she does this weird thing with her foot that no one else does. You know that because you've interacted with your best friend for years and years and years. But when you meet a stranger, this is a significant source of confusion because we don't know their idiosyncrasies. And so when they diverge from our our stereotypes about how they're supposed to express emotion, we completely misread them.
0: So you think there is such variance in cultural distinction. That we are miscommunicating and misinterpreting one another continually. To tag the Friends reference a bit, their their primary objective is not the, you know, in the Shakespearean terms to hold a mirror up to nature, but rather to represent a kind of an r- recognisable archetypes of yes. emotion. And hence you get the almost commedia dell'arte expressions of shock and anger but to say that there is no universality to human emotion and human communication do you think is uh, that it sounds to me like a very uh, an extreme position mm-hmm. for like for example getting into sort of linguistics that there are sort of deep embedded grammatical structures that replicate throughout our mm-hmm. language um touching on the idea that we may have absorbed our vocabulary of expression and communication from media sounds like a sort of a, a baudrillard baudrillardian if i can say mm-hmm. type idea of that that we're all of our language and our references are from immersion in culture the suggestion that there is no essence no universal no perennial uh that that certainly would account for a lot of miscommunication and some of the stories that I'm sure are in this what I'm excited to read and I'm sure will be an an excellent book but uh, is that your end point that that we don't have a shared and common vocabulary or shared human
1: experience well so there is much commonality there is some commonality it's not that we are incapable of understanding of understanding people who have a different kind of catalogue of Of uh, expressions. But there is more difference than we, I think, uh, expect. So I'll give you an example of a a classic study of this is a bunch of Portuguese, a bunch of Spanish psychologists um, have a series of pictures. So you have a very expressive face. We could do it with you. I say, show me surprise. I take a picture. Show me shock. I take a picture. Show me anger. Picture. Yes, you're doing it very well actually. And <laughs> I do I do all the show me disgust, show me, you know. So I have all of these quintessential I like this game. <laughs> <laughs> so I have I have 10 pictures in the end, right? Or oh, however many. I have all the basic emotions. And then I show them I take them around the corner to a local elementary school and I show 30 English school children, 8 years old, eight pictures of Russell showing various facial expressions can they correctly identify as each expression the answer is absolutely a hundred percent they will look at your angry face and they'll say russell's angry they will look at your happy face and they'll say he's he's ecstatic right now let's take those same pictures to the most remote culture in the world let's take us take it to a to a uh an island in the south seas where uh you know they're still they're still in some pre-modern state, right? They're about as far from Western society as we can. Now this is a an island where uh, this is actually done by I'm, I'm replicating exact experiment, but an island where they have an extremely rich culture, where the language is complicated, where the emotional it's not like they're somehow. You know, um, not emotionally sophisticated, highly emotionally sophisticated culture, but it's a pre-modern culture. So they have no very little connection with the West. They've never seen friends. We show them the same pictures of Russell and we, and we test their accuracy in can they how accurate are they at identifying Russell's angry face? The answer is not that accurate. They'll make really fundamental things. They'll look at your uh, they'll look at your angry face and say that you're frightened and your frightened face and think that you're angry, for example. They'll look at your angry or they'll look at your happy face and think that you're kind of indifferent. Or they'll, I mean, mistakes that make no sense to us. And that suggests that our notions of the of how emotion ought to be expressed are far more culturally um, constructed than we imagine.
0: Also undermines those charts that autistic kids Men are use, you know. They say, like, for autistic kids having uh, uh, complications in communicating emotions. Do you feel like this, or like this, or like this? It's a possibility that they are in some uh, psychological South Pacific isle, and the language of facial expression is distinct from what increasingly seems, according to your analysis, to be a, a, a set of social constructs. I mean, there is no reason why furrowing the brow should be, you know. Well, I don't know. I suppose we'd need to consult a biochemist or an anatomist yeah. to say, "Oh no, what happens Is some hormones are released? We contract these muscles." To, you know, there must be, or an evolutionary psychologist. I don't know who we would consult yeah. to to underwrite that. The
1: the tribe. The, the, one of the funniest things about this tribe, in um, they were in one of they were in um, a little island uh, called the Trobian Islands, which are in the uh, an archipelago off Indonesia. Um, the researchers who go there, they show them, the Islanders, you know, a picture of a surprised face. And they really had a lot of trouble with surprise. They didn't understand the surprise expression. And so he finally he was, like, very puzzled by this. How do they register surprise? And he had, happened to have, this was a couple years ago, an iPod with him. And they, of course, had never seen an iPod before. He takes out his iPod. They all look at the iPod. And what do they do? They make a clicking sound with their tongue. That's their Surprise. <laughs> oh, wow. Is that fabulous? I just, I just love that. And he was like, oh, you know, it's a it's a kind of it's it's a very, it's a deeply counterintuitive notion. But to follow up on your point about when we try and teach autistic people expressions, the other point you would make one should make is that we're teaching them how to understand Western. We're not teaching them human universals. We're teaching them how to thrive in this society in 2019. That's What we're teaching something very specific and local, not something global and universal. Which is, oh, go ahead.
0: Well, my understanding, Malcolm, is that you said, like, that it was, and this is, you know, this is not a subject by in which I'm by any means an expert, but that, that with the limitations of syntax, they would say, Do you feel like this? and point to a range of expressions. Now, if that, if these expressions, as you are saying. I have no reason at all not to to, to think that you're making this stuff up. Like if that if those expressions are not underwritten by some Mm. kind of universality, then how the hell are we ever going to reach across the void? And that speaks Mm. to a sort of a, a deeper point, I suppose, that the communicative arts, and I suppose that's all art, are somehow founded on the idea that we can reach across the abyss between us and connect with something that is somehow absolute and total and feel the reassurance of oh, when your heart is broken it's the same as when my heart is broken mm. and that we can find commonality in that if there's this degree of variance distinction and enculturation at the level of what we would consider to be the most basic building blocks of communication then I suppose there's a, I'm afraid of ending up in some sort of post-structuralist abyss of growth roping alienation is that something that you have concerns that's a, about
1: that's a uh uh that's a a, a a gloomy way of looking at it another way of looking at it is and i mean, you're not you know, and i don't necessarily disagree with you but i would also say the more positive way to look at it is that um what this does is that it is alerts us to the extraordinary richness and variation of human cultural experience um you know what, you know what i'm reminded of is you know how when you watch a comedy from forty years ago or a stand-up routine from fifty years ago, and you understand you understand that it's funny and that parts of it make you laugh, but you don't laugh the way that people at the time laughed. And so you're aware that even in your own even in a space of forty years, our notion of what funny is has migrated quite substantially. Like when I watched the a Three Stooges movie. It's really, you know, fundamentally, I'm not, This does not get a single belly laugh from me. But I understand intellectually, oh, in 19-whatever, 35, I don't know when the Stooges were, people found this incredibly hilarious. And I have respect for that. And I marvel at how different the world was. But I'm also aware it does not, it doesn't land with me, right? And it doesn't land with many people of this generation, not, not all of us, but with many people. Similarly, you know, even a television show from twenty-five years ago is it's, you know—you listen to the narr- watch the narrative, and there are many parts of it that just seem odd. You know, you don't notice how slow t- uh, narratives are from twenty-five years ago. Like it's almost as if they've taken a television show and it's playing at half speed. Like you just you're like, what's happening? Like, why is this guy driving in a car? For thirty seconds in the middle of the, and nothing is happening. Like, what, do they expect me just to sit there watch a guy drive a car with music playing? Like, this is television, you know. So there's that. There, it's just sort of interesting that this. I think we tend to underestimate just how much um, uh, uh, movement there is in culture, within our own culture, and also between from one culture to another. And that's really what I'm getting at. That's a powerful source of, of. um of confusion when we when we do this kind of communication.
0: Do you think that it's uh, forms of imperialism, whether individual or social, that are being practiced here, the imposition of, well, this, these are our norms, this is how we respond? How does what you're saying relate to power?
1: I mean, it relates a fair amount to power. So the idea that emotional expressions really are universal was an idea that was Promulgated by Western psychologists in the 1960s, pr- primarily American psychologists in the 1960s. Now, is it any surprise that American co- psychologists in the 1960s, at the height of American cultural dominance, would go around the world saying, you know what, everyone in the world expresses their emotions just like us, right? So they were sort of strongly motivated to see their own particular culture as universal, because that was the that was the age we were in when American power was seemed universal. So there would be—it's not surprising to me there would have been a kind of um, uh, uh, enthusiasm for the idea that the rest of the world is simply doing versions of American cultural practice or Western cultural practice. Um, and it's taken take a, it took a long time for the and to this day there are many. Well, not just general public, but many academics who resist the notion that there is this level of of um cultural variation. But the evidence is pretty overwhelming that um that the world, the the world does not see this kind of stuff all the same way.
0: Yes, and uh, there, there, yeah, there, there are various cultural inflections that are informed by environment and condition. Like that sort of seems, you know, like how can it be disputed when spoken language has so much variation within an accepted grammatical framework? But to me, that would that suggests that it is at least possible that although there's very you know, that, that an apple might be called a different word in a variety of language, That, that they you the, know, without getting too deep into Derrida, that that the, the, the apple-ness of an apple remains the same and that the, that we still are expressing from the same palette but I suppose you're talking about misinterpretation in this book talking to strangers that oh that yeah. person smirked or sneered or whatever it was like that recent case that caused much controversy in the United States uh, the, the teens in the MAGA hat Deemed oh, yeah, yeah. to have smirked, and what that meant, and what that implied, and how that was weaponized by various sides of that argument. So, yeah, I I, I understand what you are saying. How do you de, How do you deploy that in this? I noticed that one of the cases that you use is the Amanda Knox case. How yeah. do, how does that well, that's, work? That's, in this that's book? a
1: classic example of what we're talking about. Here we have a case where an outsider, a cultural outsider, and an awkward adolescent, middle class American goes to Italy and is somehow in the the middle of this horrendous crime. And her reactions um, strike people not from her culture as strange. So both the Italian police and the English tabloid press look at her and say, she doesn't behave the way we think diswrought roommates ought to behave upon hearing of the death of their—the murder of their roommate— and so they take that as evidence of something nefarious on her part, guilt. And she goes to jail, even though the whole thing is preposterous. The whole, a, there's no evidence linking her to the crime. And the crime itself makes no sense that some a teenage, an, an immature teenager would somehow engage in a murderous, satanic, sexual ritual with a drifter and her boyfriend of two weeks and her i mean i mean who does this this is crazy like it's just i mean but somehow this fantasy was perpetuated because of this very thing i've been talking about because of an expectation that if you were truly diswrought, that meant you had to behave a certain way now what's interesting about this is i think that this happens this is a hugely crucial thing when it comes to things like the way that law enforcement interacts with Uh, disadvantaged communities. You have a white middle-class police officer who is asked to make sense of an immigrant or someone of a different economic class or someone from a very different social background. And if they're not alert to the cues, the cultural cues, they're going to make substantial errors in how they make sense of this person they're talking to. And that's really what I'm getting at in the book, that these kinds of errors are not trivial, they're, they, 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 and they could be extraordinarily corrosive to the, um, the to the sort of social fabric in a society.
0: What were the assumptions, and which cues were misread in the Amanda Knox case that yeah. you think are helpful to illustrate this?
1: So, you know, as you know, there have been there is a library of books on the Amanda Knox case, and also a library of documentaries, and I have, I have had the misfortune of. Reading them, almost all of them, they're all the same, and they all. And if you read, you know, all of the tabloid coverage, it also is the same. What they were doing is there was there were a, a series of incidents that were seized upon that were seen as characteristic of Amanda Knox's true feelings. So, for example, she's meeting with Meredith Kircher's friends in the immediate aftermath of the murder, and they're all weeping and hugging each other, and Amanda is standoffish and instead of uh, being diswrought and reserved is angry. She's with her or she goes with her boyfriend of two weeks to the police station and while they're waiting to be interrogated by the police, she sits on his lap and they hug and kiss. Or she's spotted across the street the next day buying underwear at a lingerie shop, red underwear in fact, when Everyone assumed that she should be home sobbing quietly. Now, Amanda Knox would say, well, the, ho- the house was sealed. It's a murder investigation. I have no access to my underwear. I need to buy some underwear, right? She would say, um, why is anger in response to the brutal murder of your roommate inappropriate? That seems to me entirely appropriate. This, this Someone, some evil person, has, could, has, has just committed an appalling act in my house, killing a friend of mine, why Why is the only proper response to weep quietly in the corner? Or here I am, I'm 18, I'm all alone in a foreign culture, the only person I really close to is my boyfriend. Of course I'm going to hug and kiss him during one of the most stressful periods of my life. These are all very good explanations for but also, a more more importantly, she's a little weird. Mm. She's immature. She's, eight, she's whatever she is, 18, 19. She's an awkward she's always been an awkward she describes in her autobiography she was the girl in high school who would hang out with the kind of marginalized you know the kids who are into you know japanese comic books and weird sci-fi things and she would sing loudly to herself as she walked down the hall or she would you know she's that kind of person she she follows her own and that in you know, a context of people who know her they're like oh Amanda's weird but no one in Italy knew that Amanda's weird
0: do you think as well as it being a misinterpretation of social cues or behaviours the cuddling um, the purchase of underwear that there's also because I I can speak with some experience on the tropes and appetites of the British tabloid press that it's not from a a neutral position uh, with a set of analytics saying, hold on a minute, you're the grieving housemate, we'd like to see a bit more weeping. Yeah. The, 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 the interpretive uh, device, in this case, the tabloid press, they have particular stereotypes and needs that they project and like young women is a real yeah. rich seam for them and the sexualization of young women and the idea of a kind of femme fatale demonic overly sex i remember that being a big part of the stories at that time so As well as uh, like that there is a pre-existing appetite to reach a particular conclusion Mm -hmm. in addition to, oh, hold on a minute, you're not crying. It's also you're not crying and by Jove, you're sexy. Wouldn't it be cool if this was a graphic sex murder that we can report on? And would that play into also such as, you know, police officer of some years standing talks to member of immigrant community? presumably brings a particular set of prejudices also to that relationship.
1: Absolutely. So what's interesting about the, there is a deeply uh, purient and also puritanical strain in tabloid journalism, right? They are explicitly or implicitly enforcing a very kind of conservative set of social and sexual mores. Um, you know, with her, remember her nickname, There was great to do about the fact her nickname was Foxy Noxy, which was supposed to be, you know, this sort of sexualized thing about how she was, because she was quite attractive, very attractive. In fact, she's called Foxy Noxy because when she played football as a child, she was as elusive as a fox. She was a very good football player and she could move the ball, you know, and no one could catch her. And so it dates back to when she was before puberty, when she was, so it's like, that's a classic case of it didn't occur to anyone to wonder whether that word had more than one meaning, right? It doesn't necessarily mean you're this hypersexualized, you know, femme fatale. It could also mean that when you were eleven, you were a particularly, you know, um, deadly striker for your for your school soccer team. Um, this is a lot of that kind of um, a rush to paint her a specific way. And, you know, the, the, other, the other thing about that, I don't mean to make this all about that story, but it's such a fascinating story in retrospect because it's so ludicrous in retrospect. That, but, you know, when they ask her, they, they they at one point, they kind of trick her into thinking that she might be, have some communicable disease like HIV. And so they ask her for a list of all of her sexual partners, which she makes. And then they release the list um, as evidence of her promiscuity. And... There was a misunderstanding. This she was making a list of everyone she'd ever sort of been romantically involved in in her entire life, and they made it sound like it was a list of people that she'd been involved with just since she'd been in Italy. Right, so it's like, you know, on every at every turn, there is this kind of systematic attempt to mis to misinterpret her guilelessness um, and make it seem evidence of her kind of malice and um wantonness um and that's you know that i just every time you read things like that you wonder how often does this happen that we're and we're not aware of it how many times have we closed the book on someone without realizing that we have been engaging in a version of this game Yes, because
0: in less vivid and lurid examples, there would be no cause for this degree of analysis. What do, in talking to strangers, what, what what is it? What do you conclude about the way that we should pro- approach interactions with strangers, and, and, and what more broadly can we learn from this
1: analysis? Well, you know, I have a, I have a very. Um, my conclusion is that we need to be. Sort of a, it's sort of a, it's, we need to be more cautious and more humble, meaning slow down in our attempts to make sense of strangers and um, understand real limits in how well we can know someone. Um, you know, I can come away from this encounter with you being in, I might have an array of emotional responses. I cannot come away saying I know Russell. Right? I can't even begin to pretend that I know you or you know me. Right, We have to be very aware going into this conversation of how little can reliably be gleaned from the efforts of it. What we can say is we've enjoyed it or we haven't enjoyed it. It was interesting. It was not interesting. We found each other clever or not clever. But I can't claim to have any deep insight into your... It's funny. I, this came up once. I remember this. I once gave a talk before a group of journalists, and it was a it was a convention devoted to the art of profile writing. And I got up, they were all talking about all the things you can do to kind of uh, uh, tools for being, writing effective profiles, of famous figures, celebrities, what have you. And I gave a talk where I said, well, you know, I think the profile is impossible, and probably a bad idea, and the only, re, the only way to write them is to make it absolutely claim, clear in when you're writing it that you don't know this person at all and have no way of getting to know them. And someone, this of course caused great, great consternation among journalists, and someone said, yeah, but, you know, how, how do you feel then about therapy? I mean, the therapist. And I said, well, the therapy, first of all, therapy, you go every day, every week, or twice a week, for years. Two, the therapist is trained. And three, the therapist is not publishing the results of their encounter with you on the front page of a magazine or a newspaper. So you're willing to be honest with your therapist because there's a atmosphere of trust. You don't, when you're talking to a journalist, you, you don't, you're you not like trusting that they will be um, thoughtful and um, sensitive in how they represent what you say. You know they'll run with whatever you give them. So it's completely not analogous. So the even the conceit of journalism along these lines is fundamentally flawed. It's like, you can't write a profile unless you say, I am, I am just trying to illuminate one small part of someone's life. Yeah,
0: through the lens of my prejudices, i'm and my understanding and the my tendencies when writing about great athletes and the things that i continually look for and represent and misrepresent you're quite right that really that really makes that really makes a lot of sense to me um with um with um outliers what was your what was what was your uh, point of initial interest there greatness
1: yeah um i got sick of successful people um taking credit for their own success and being oblivious to uh all of the sort of hidden ways in which they had been helped along um i just found it if you live in new york as i do there's a there's a you know a, a same as london a large body of very successful people who are deeply deluded about the reasons for their success and who will claim they did it all themselves even as you know they inherited hundreds of millions of dollars from their father like the american president for example um so this after you know, the hundredth time you sit at a dinner party and some kid tells you about how brilliant they are and how they graduated you know from harvard university and then you discover that almost certainly not only did their father go to Harvard University, but their father almost certainly donated an extraordinary sum of money there, which made it um, you know, a virtual, that made them a virtual lock for admission. You begin to get to lose patience. And so that book was born out of my impatience with this particular um, delusion. And I wanted to say, look, success is a very complicated story that requires um, the contributions of many, and let's be honest about it.
0: What I notice is then that your own work is subject to the phenomena that you frequently write about in that much of your work people cherry pick an idea I'm speaking for myself and also the way that I encounter your work outside of the original Mm. material Uh, take one thing like oh you can trust your instincts when across that book you're saying instincts while powerful can be unreliable and can be akin almost to superstition Mm. the outliers book which is you know almost a critique on greatness and show that greatness is a construct underwritten by municipal facilitation and privilege or whatever people sort of say no Bill Gates I mean I, i read that book of course and I feel like I took what I took from myself was oh he was had that computer at his school and the Beatles slogged away in Hamburg and I sort of almost took it to be a kind of a, a Protestant you know mm-hmm. graft toil type, you know, as opposed mm-hmm. to the tendrils of success reach out in thousands yeah. of directions yeah
1: yeah but you can't you know you can't control the way people read your work and a, a, a book a complicated book by definition is going to be interpreted in many different ways and you have to be prepared for that so i don't get overly um i don't get overly frustrated when i feel like my work has been misinterpreted i feel like that's just the price you pay for um for uh for tackling an ambitious topic do you meditate do i meditate i don't but i i'm a runner and mm. I feel like there's a significant overlap between running long distances, particularly if you don't put things in your ears, and I don't, and meditating. Um, it's, a, you know, it's a methodical, rhythmic activity done in privacy that allows your mind, gives your mind time to, uh, to be free of its encumbrances. So it's not dissimilar. Early morning? No, I'm, a, I'm, an, I'm an evening and afternoon runner. I c- I can't imagine. The whole idea of doing anything vigorous in the morning is so um distasteful to me. <laughs> yeah. What well, and
0: like just wherever you are, do you prefer nature or cities or
1: I mean if to run in the countryside is the greatest of all things, yeah. Um
0: I ran more than I do for a while. Now I run mostly with my dog, but the f- one of the first runs i went on was in fairfield iowa curiously where the transcendental meditation folk have set up their you know center Mm -hmm. and community And on a sort of one of the first runs I went on, it was like snowing and I found myself deep in these beautifully bucolic and frosty settings. And I saw an eagle landed on a bale of hay, like this ridiculously large bird of prey. And I felt like I'm in concert with this nature. Mm -hmm. I'm in concert Mm -hmm. with it. And I enjoy the, as you say, the sort of being unencumbered and the sort of wordless serenity that can come
1: about. You meditate.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, I meditate a lot. It's the, without it, without that, as well as a good many other systems and methods, I find serenity difficult to achieve. I'm, yeah. the, the, I don't tend towards peace. I, note that i become kind of agitated and stuff what are your s- spiritual beliefs what uh, what what have these extensive studies into these various phenomena and uh these constructions of interesting narratives about how these things may come about led you to believe about you know the nature of consciousness the nature of god what where how where, where do you land on these things yeah malcolm
1: well i'm a um i am uh not an atheist. I um I believe very strongly in the existence of God and some kind of spiritual um, dimension to life. Um, but more importantly than that, I am someone who is deeply respectful of religious practice. So I think that there is something very beautiful that emerges from um from a kind of considered and um ritualized attempt to uh to reach outside yourself Um, which i think is you know i I think of the the um there is nothing more or a few things more corrosive and pernicious in the long term than people who never have an opportunity to uh, reflect on something other than their own particular condition um and that i think we're sort of In some sense, I think we're seeing the consequences of a little of that now, that we've now gone rather along. You know, here's a very concrete example of that. Um, Whatever you think about going to church on Sunday morning, the thing that that accomplished for years and years and years was several things. One is it allowed you to see people that you disagreed with in a different context. So... I could be violently opposed to your politics, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. But on Sunday, I would see you in church and I would be reminded that we have something we have in common. There, you know, there is something we both believe in, which is probably more important than the things we disagree with Monday to Friday. So that's actually a hugely important thing. The second important thing is, it's important for people, it's a place for people to mix, not just with people who, people of different classes to mix. You may be driving, you know, a Bentley, and I may be driving a Mini. But in the church, we're both in the same place, doing the same thing. And that's also incredibly useful in divided time. And those kinds of regular rituals of inclusion, and you can't, I mean, you could replace it with something else if you want, but you have to have it. You have to have some form of it have some way to make sense of someone outside of these very very narrow um definitions of of kind of personhood and that's that's the thing that i i think is incredibly valuable
0: i would agree that if there is no iteration of community if we don't have a sense of our shared values requirements and conditions the, the the tendency is towards individualism i've been thinking somewhat about the relationship between individualism Rationalism and materialism, and like post enlightenment rationalism, leading to a kind of an individualistic, materialist, and ultimately consumerist culture. Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel like you can add something to that? And does it feel like that's something I should continue to think about and explore?
1: Yeah. Well, I'll give you a a um, uh, a possibly a bad example, and possibly a far fetched example, but it's a version of this. I I'm a run, like I say I'm a runner. And once a week, I gather with my track club and we do a workout together. And so several things are interesting about that. One is that when you go to track practice, you you get rid of everything except your running shorts, your t-shirt, and your running shoes, right? It's something that's done completely apart from all of the accoutrements of modern life. It is exactly the same as the ritual that people went through when they ran 100 years ago, right? That's interesting. The second thing is that it's an identity that exists apart from all other identities. So I don't even know the last names of most of the people in my club. I don't know what they do for a living. I don't know how much money they make. All I know is they like running, like me, right? So it's like all of a sudden we've invented a a form of collective identity that sits above all the other ones or sits apart from all the other ones. And the third thing is that it involves... um, uh this kind of union of uh, physical exertion and will psychological will and that's really interesting too we're testing ourselves in a way that the modern world doesn't make us test ourselves right that's all those things are kind of fascinating and that the idea that i would happily run with someone who has who has not only has may not may have no possessions or no May not make a lot of money. May not have any education. And I would have, not only would I be happily running with that person, I would have no idea about that def- difference, right? And it wouldn't even remotely cons- con- uh, occur to either of us to explore that dimension of our difference. That is interesting, right? And that I think is something when we talk about this, the uh, the connection between individualism and uh, materialism they are connected because the minute we start to define ourselves entirely by alone autonomously then then what you've accomplished what you've accumulated matters it, you know I, part of the way I define myself is I drive X number of car and I live in this right but in that environment of collective activity it doesn't matter anymore right we're just running here um and I sort of wish makes me want makes me wish that everyone had some form of that um
0: experience yes uh, yes you're able to experience a type of truth there that is amidst the clutter Redundant, discarded, and perhaps somehow not even present. Uh, comparison from my own life is: uh, I go to Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and you have the same thing. You put on a uniform together. You line up in order of the belts. There's this ritualized running around mm. the sort of space. There's these exercises that everyone conducts. You. At the end, you will shake hands and sort of bow to one another. It's loaded with ritual that, whilst it has hierarchy, it's a kind of. I heard I went, I attended a grading recently, and one of the black belts who had sort of achieved a certain degree of accreditation said, We all come through that door with different needs and different lives. But once we're in here, mm-hmm. we all want the same thing, we're all the same. And what something that is achieved in kind of in under the auspices of progressive liberalism was achieved quite unconsciously there because the cheers that went up for the people with eastern european surnames and muslim sounding surnames were this it was uniform it was Mm -hmm. uniform in there it didn't matter genders race everybody mixed together according to that and you, you know like it like you say with the running there's something to be said by this sh- sharing of purpose this sort of a, 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 a willingness and also the exertional thing i felt then that you know i had this experience once malcolm where i leapt into like a very cold pond and like the when the sort of yawp came out of me of like you know of hitting the cold, I do stuff like that pretty regular these days. I felt like oh my god, I didn't know my body could make that noise and make that sound. And I recognised then that I'd been incubated in a kind of sort of pudgy comfort where I never pushed beyond the parameters of this sort of um, sedentary s- slavery oh. to mm. my own comfort and the service of idea, you know, and. That's interesting that that is part of the condition of the type of lives we live, these sort of
1: urban, modern, Western lives. Yeah. Well, there's supposed to be a, there has to be a, you have to pay a price for this. Otherwise, the, ex, the, the, the whole exercise is meaningless. There must be some sacrifice. That's why the, that's where the, that's where the joy comes from. If, if you all got together and no, no part of it involved exertion or difficulty, then it, I think it would cease to have, it wouldn't have the same meaning. Right, um, uh, that's certainly true of of running. The it's not just getting together; it's that we get together and then we exhaust each other. <laughs> mm, so, mm. I'm sounding I'm sounding very uh, kind of nineteenth uh, uh, century, uh, um, <laughs> you know, Victorian uh, in my outlook. But I, there's something to
0: that. It's very it is romantic. I like it, and I like this idea of sacrifice—an idea that somehow seems to be. Adrift, it's difficult to access that idea, perhaps without a theological underpinning. That we give yeah. something up, we give yeah. something over, and perhaps in a sort of a athletic context, you can find. I, I
1: remember listening to a uh, Lance Armstrong, the cyclist, has a podcast, which is quite fascinating in many ways. I remember listening to him once, and he was chatting with one of his former teammates from his Tour de France days and they were reminiscing about cycling, and they were talking about their children, and how do they, what lessons from their own athletic career do they want to pass on to their children? And you thought they would talk about teamwork and the joy of this, and And they were like, no, no, no. Both of them, the only thing we care about is we're really, really worried our our children um, uh, won't know what it means to experience pain. We want them to, to learn how to suffer and the thing that they got from and it was hilarious because it was like their their interpretation of, you know, 10 years out of what was truly valuable about climbing a mountain all day was just how much suffering it was and how like in retrospect meaningful that was to them and they were desperately afraid their kids would never suffer in the same way the only time i've ever heard parents say they want their kids to suffer was Lance Armstrong and his buddy on this podcast but it's, they're getting the same point there that there's something in you know if you can learn how to productively suffer you you emerge with that from that experience with um um, some kind of strength that you wouldn't have had before not that i you know would like to suffer. those guys really did suffer i mean the tour de france is the most bananas exercise in masochism perhaps ever conceived i would rather climb mount everest than bike the tour de france i mean i can't imagine anything harder it's crazy yeah, I mean, I, I can't conceptualize
0: it, but this idea of mortification is uh, it's interesting to me because I suppose I- in its praxis is the idea of a separation from the experiencer and bodily sensation that no, I can continue. I can continue. I am not this. I am not the, But there's a sort of a
1: transcendent. Yes, yes, that's it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That you glimpse something. The same thing we've been talking. You glimpse something outside of yourself.
0: Yeah, I've been in my own uh, current Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I've been like, I've noticed that I, I got an injury recently and I've noticed that my willingness to go through that, like the, the discomfort that you experience in Brazilian jiu-jitsu because it's sort of mostly grappling, you know, is that you feel the weight of someone on you. And when you're, say, on top of your game, you ha- it's the ability to find a willingness to sort of transcend that, to tolerate it, to endure. Like, currently, when it happens, I feel someone on my face. I think, oh God, I don't want to feel this. I'm, like I feel panic. And wanting to let go of it and wanting it to to end too much combining with my uh you know with my body and with the bodily experience of discomfort. Uh, another thing, while I have you here, please, uh, and and because. I'm assuming just because of your sort of diligent expertise that I can ask you about anything and you'll come back with something. I've been thinking a lot about the cor- uh, corollary between sort of post-structuralist uh, analysis, particularly in terms of deconstructing, uh, abiding narratives, which sort of seems to talk to this stuff around talking to strangers. We bring these assumptions. This is what's, you know, normal and this is how this, what the standards of behaviour are and how to, we can deconstruct patriarchy and nation and various ideas by using the two tools of, say, Foucault and uh, Eastern mysticism the idea that the self is a construct that you are not the pain that you are not the memory that you are not the biochemical drive uh, do you see anything in these ideas uh, do you do would you agree with that this corollary is it something that you feel qualified to speak about you can't be less qualified than me mm-hmm. and uh, is it something that's interesting to you huh it's to
1: be honest, not something that I've devoted a great deal of thought to, not because I'm hostile to those ideas, but just because um, I haven't gotten to it yet, I suppose. Uh, the um, Are you interested in like, post-structuralism, for
0: example, or independently in those two fields, like um, Eastern mysticism mm-hmm. or theology, at least, and post-structuralism?
1: Yes. I guess what I would say about this is that... Um, there's a kind of corollary to this, what you're talking about, in the very institutional academic world, which has been this attempt to understand, and it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, um, that when you begin to understand the um, that there aren't these very simple human universals, there are universals, but we had a caricatured notion about how we were all the same. And that was really fed by... Um, by as as we were talking about, you know, the most powerful country on earth sent its academics into the world, who came back with the conclusion like they're all like us. We're setting the standard, in a sense. And there's been now a retreat from that, and part of the retreat from that has been, for example, a lot of really fascinating work trying to understand, trying to uh, first noting and then trying to understand the profound differences in the way, you know, East and West take a look at um, ordinary experience. So there's a, some of these experiments are so, much, are so fascinating, like um, I show you an aquarium. In the aquarium there are big fish, little fish, rocks, trees, blah, blah, blah. I say, look at the aquarium, and then I come back to you, and leave the room, and then write down your memories of what you saw. So we do this with a randomly selected group of Americans, and then we do it with a bunch of Chinese or Japanese say Japanese people of the same age, what you discover is if you compare the two groups' recollections, they are completely different. Completely. The Americans will say, will mention there's a really big, there'll be one really big fish, they'll describe the really big fish, and they'll leave out all the details. They're like, there is a really big fish. It was like purple and had, you know, you know a green comb on it, and it was like going around. And the Japanese will say, there were you know, four small rocks at the bottom. There was a school. I saw a school, a little thing over here. It'll be all about the, they'll see the context, and the Americans will look, focus on the most important person in the thing in the aquarium. Now these are, one's not wrong and the other right. These are just different ways of organizing experience that are stressing different aspects of experience that profoundly shape the way those two communities make sense of the world. And I think alerting ourselves to the idea that um, there really are many different ways to read a situation, um, depending on where you sit, is incredibly important. Yes. It really, you know, if I could ask for one thing from the educational system, it is that when you graduate, you should be aware of that fact, that your way of seeing the world is not the only way. Yes. And yet it seems that we are
0: witnessing a rise in hegemony and homogenization. This doesn't seem like a time where we afford uh, more diversity of experience. So when you uh, apply that uh, belief to politics, what does that what do you hope for uh, politically do you hope for more devolution more centralization more progressivism or what wh- how do you translate uh, the, the, your now substantial body of work into a p- political understanding or is that even is that yeah. something that you do
1: well i think i would say i would ask for more devolution i uh, i think the problem now is that we are trying to to govern highly diverse societies um uh, with one set of ideologies and beliefs, and and it's just gets just too hard now. It's one thing if it's 1820 and everyone comes from the same place and worships at the same church, and it's really hard when it's 2019. And um, so in Amer- you know, I think America is the real lesson of the American um, situation at the moment is that America, as presently structured, is ungovernable. Uh, It's just, there's just too much difference between, you know, California and Nebraska. Um, And instead of, you know, you can either uh, be deeply respectful of those differences at the national level, which seems really hard to do, (laughs) or you can say, it's actually four countries, it's not one. And that's, is there a graceful way for us to kind of um, uh, not you don't have to separate formally, but a graceful way for us to acknowledge that in the way that we allow people to govern themselves. Uh, it's just too hard otherwise. It's surprisingly
0: infrequent that you hear the reversal of national sovereignty discussed. It's it's, 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 We do take that as an absolute, the same way as we would assume everyone sees the aquarium in pretty much the same way. We assume, no... Nationhood—that's you know—we're going to take democracy to that nation, assuming that we're the people to do it. That is a nation; we're a nation. All of these things unquestioned—that there is one progressive lineage along which we're all <laughs> we're all travelling—and like people, I suppose that the sense that people would people see that somehow nostal- not nostalgic they see it as retroactive to to, yeah. to deconstruct to say hold up there can never be a single governing force of 300 million or in this country 60 million because it's the, in a, it, it's the same the, as you have diagnosed it Uh, American politics or American political or social political life it it seems the same here that for me I feel like well how will these people with all of these diverse requirements ever again be umbrellaed under something like we are England and and for what end (laughs) who benefits from there being one centralized identity particularly as institutions are are slowly deconstructed around us and dissolved and privatized and monetized and sold off what? who's benefiting from there being a centralised American or yeah, English go, yeah, British government?
1: Yeah, no, there is a kind of... Um, it's clear that a border doesn't mean today what it meant in the past, so maybe it's time to kind of be thoughtful about what a modern border um, means, what its sort of symbolic value is, what its practical value is. Um, I always think, uh, you know, as a as a, someone who lives in the United States... When I, when I come to England, the, the kind of the continuing debate about whether what the status of, say, Scotland is with respect to the rest of the UK, I always find sort of weird. Like, it's not as if the Scottish aren't going to pack their bags and physically move their island to some distant part of the world. They're always going to be there. You're always going to be able to go there make friends with Scottish people. It's not that far away. You can still drink scotch and, you know, eat haggis. I mean, it's not like, it's just a symbolic thing. So maybe they want their, you know, quote unquote independence. I mean, I don't understand why it's such a huge deal. It's like, there's still going to be friends. English and Scots are still going to be friends. I mean, it's like, like there's a kind of weird sense in which people um, get all worked up about these arrangements. Yes. It's not, it's kind of, it's fine.
0: Romantic notions of nation and domination uh, uh, in relation to England and Scotland presumed dominance, you know, like the great history of war and rivalry and eventual subjugation of Scotland under the, you know, and one could argue the same thing for Britain's relationship with the European Union, these economic and trade relationships, these administrative bureaucratic relationships that are ultimately related to domination. These are like, I, I feel like you, Malcolm, that the, the, the direction like that for ordinary people to feel a sense of shared purpose and shared values, such as, as described in being part of a track club or a jujitsu club, how does that exist? on a Mm. national or international Mm. scale? And why should it? Why why would we bring that abstraction into our lives when it can do nothing but create opposition and conflict?
1: I guess to link the things we've been talking about, I'm far more interested in um, encouraging the formation of these sort of informal, deeply personal collective identities than I am in propping up these kinds of formal, um, impersonal, grand collective identities that uh we wouldn't be so worked up about the state of the nation if we had meaningful um uh personal ties with social uh ties um on our in, in our immediate world so it's like i you know i sort of feel like we could solve we can solve this need in a different way if we're purposeful about it. I agree and whilst
0: much of our conversation has been predicated on the acknowledging that there are many things that we assume to be universal may be cultural, do you feel that there are anthropological roots that if somehow honoured might create Fairer and um, uh, more richer systems, i.e., through the running when there is a tribe that have a shared purpose and a shared vision and a shared experience, where there is mutual suffering and respect and a, a degree of equality. You know that that for me, I sense that that probably tr- ha- resonates with with something in somewhat inherent. Would you agree?
1: Yes, I do think. I don't think that that civil societies can function without, num- without numerous forms of collective identity. That, you know, that idea that you must, so I, I've often the, the, the thought about this as a kind of an abstract exercise. If you meet someone and you say, what are all the ways in which you would describe yourself? And what you find, of course, is that people, the minute they're even remotely reflective, they can come up with multiple descriptors. I could be, you know. I could be a woman. I can be Greek. I could be gay. I could be a mother, a daughter. I could be a physician. I could, you know, you can imagine. I've described someone for you who has. She could also be, a, say, she's a, an athlete. She's a basketball player. She's a. All of those things are deeply important to her. Maybe she's religious. Make that eight. I've now described eight ways in which eight identities, possible identities for her, and then you say okay let's give everyone eight let's say everyone has eight identities. each person will rank them differently for some people the identity of physician will be one mother two Greek third some people will be Greek one, mother five athlete two you know everyone's got their own way of kind of organizing and when you sort of take a step back and make everyone do that exercise, you realize, good Lord there are uh there is an there's an enormous variety in the way we make sense of each other. So you have to if you're going to have a country you have to be deeply respectful of that variety. Mm-hmm. That not everyone just because I Malcolm Gladwell put my identity of writer first and Canadian fifth does not mean that I can look down my nose at, at someone who puts Canadian first and their profession at the bottom of the list. Mm-hmm. Right? That that's what to my mind what I was asked today in one of my interviews for this, for talking to strangers, someone got who's probably on the conservative side of things was asking kind of leading questions about my attitude towards identity politics. But to my mind, all identity politics is is people making this argument. They're just saying, for me, my sexual identity or uh, ethnic identity is at the top of the list what's wrong with that? It's fine. Uh It's like you're just being, they're just saying my order is going to be different than your order. And my order, by the way, is different from the order that society permitted through most of its history. Really useful to know, right? Not threatening. Why is that threatening? It's just, they're just saying this is what matters for me in this moment in my life. And that is what everyone has always been doing for as long as people have been, um, have, have, have been human. Why is it threatening? Do you
0: think? Because, like you know, you, you as you said, it's not threatening. Um, my assumption would be that it is threatening because it's it's a an acknowledgement of this process of diffusion and an inability to contain you, this is, this for me speaks to to power relationships. If someone goes, I'm no longer a member of this nation, I'm a member of this new nation, this is who I am, this is how I identify. It's a challenge to the very modalities
1: by which we measure and um, appoint people. It requires an adjustment on the part of the person who is in a position of power. That's what it means, right? So I can no longer assume the world, those who work for me or who are under me in the hierarchy, organize their identities in the same way that I do. And that means I have to kind of, I have to think about them, adjust them, be empathetic, see the world through their eyes, do all kinds of things which are, you know, maybe difficult and time-consuming and costly emotionally and all kinds of things, but it's a, a relatively small price to pay for respecting someone's dignity. Yes but it's still it's if you if you're accustomed to being on top and assuming everyone organizes their life the way you do it's an imposition
0: i suppose power is about if I want to do something, I'm going to do it, and I don't want to deal with all this complexity and potential opposition because your worldview differs with and possibly opposes mine. So, I, yeah, that makes sense to me. Well, Malcolm, this has been a fantastic conversation. We've been talking for seventy minutes. I really am excited to read your. I'm excited to read your new book. I'm glad we had the chance to get into that um that political area towards the end. There. Oh yeah, what do you feel about um Say the new emergent uh, deployment of tech and analytics to manip- potentially manipulate elections because in a sense it's a, an extrapolation and extension of some of your work. Oh, if we look at all this data, you know it the repurposing uh, uh, obviously, but like you know, what, what are your opinion of that of this of that kind of profiling and the utilization of it yeah. to, to potentially
1: manipulate elections. Uh, I would only say I remain a little bit dubious about that that kind of manipulation and analytical um, uh, application is as effective as its practitioners make it out to be. So, the, you know, let's be clear: this is these are services being sold by companies hoping to profit from the sale of those services, and it's in their interest to make it to kind of make it to make the claim that oh, this is super, I can, by manipulating the ads on Russell's Facebook page, I can turn Russell from X to Y. Really? Not sure about that. I kind of, I'm a little bit, I I sort of think people's motivations are uh, a lot more complex, and and changing their mind is a lot more difficult than some of these techie people uh, will care to admit. So... I don't know, I don't and
0: perhaps that there is a sort of an unconscious or unspoken collusion between the, the these uh, the technocrats selling a service and the liberal left unwilling to accept responsibility for a few decades of negligence to ordinary people.
1: Yes, or I thought you were going to say that the critics of this practice unwittingly encourage the proponents of this practice because the critics, by the assumption, this is very very powerful, and then. And in so doing, make the practice itself all the more alluring to those who want to who want to manipulate elections. So everyone's propping up what I think is a largely untested assumption about. Um, like I understand that the Russians tried to manipulate the election in America. What I don't believe is they succeeded. There's a difference. It's wrong if they tried, and they should be slapped on the hand, and we should be worried about them trying. But I need to be shown evidence that it worked. I. Really? Someone living in Moscow is paying a couple million bucks to a bunch of wonks sitting in a room of computers somewhere and they can change Americans' minds about who they're going to vote for? That sounds to me so ridiculous on its face. We, every other apparatus in society is trying really hard to change people's minds and failing, but somehow the Russian, who barely speaks English, and who was like putting ads on Facebook pages, they're the ones who control the, it just seems, it seems...
0: Do you think, though, that like with the uh, Amanda Knox story, there's an appetite to believe in the motif of the femme fatale that perhaps in American political culture, which uh, certainly at the level of media could broadly be described as sort of a liberal democratic left, it wants to believe that the only way that Donald Trump could come to power is not because of some sort of, you know, as Marianne Williams said, dark psychic forces being unleashed, but because of some skullduggery and electoral manipulation evading responsibility. it is
1: a... It is in a, as you put it it is it is a way of evading responsibility um for the conditions for their role in the conditions that led to this man's rise yeah i think that as well um, it's really good to talk to you i'd like to just
0: regularly interview you is it like a, i'm reminded of when i inadvertently acquired the phone number of eckhart toll and yeah. used him as a sort of a samaritan like i sort of eckhart i'm depressed with you i would use to continually underwrite theories that I make up while on strolls Ooh, with the genuine academic <laughs> I, information. I, I would be delighted. Oh, Thank you so much. What a privilege to talk to you. Thanks, yeah. Malcolm. Thank Cheers. you. Well, that was Malcolm Gladwell. I hope you liked it. Remember to let me know what you thought of it on Instagram. That's uh, tag me at Russell Brand or tweet me at Rusty Rockets or get onto LinkedIn and check me out there or on the new TikTok platforms or I'll be took it away at you, or subscribe to YouTube. Hey, if you watched me on Netflix? Yeah, you can if you want to. Hey, have a listen to some old ones. Will store on self-obsession and self-esteem. Ruby Wax on mental health. And sign up to my mailing list on russellbrand.com to get exclusive, intimate, probing videos for yourself. Not intimate in that way. I just mean, you know, authentic. Jenny, don't pull those faces. Intimate doesn't just mean sex, Jen. There's emotional intimacy. There's warmth, there's kindness, there's human togetherness coming at you from TikTok and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary Media with me, Russell Brand.